The Energy Gang is brought to you by Aurora Solar. Are you looking to grow your career in solar tech? Aurora is hiring across a lot of different roles. Aurora Solar is the leader in solar design and sales software with over 5 million projects designed in the platform to date. And it is looking for people to fill roles in customer success, marketing, sales, operations, and more. You can see open roles and apply to join Aurora. Voted one of the best places to work in 2021 at aurorasolar.com. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by EnelX, the global leader in advanced energy solutions. EnelX serves large businesses, governments, utilities, as well as thousands of consumers in an effort to bring cleaner, smarter solutions to market and enable rapid decarbonization efforts at all levels of the economy. Learn more about what EnelX can do for your business at EnelX.com. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. America gets 20% of its electricity from coal. That's a staggering 50% drop since the peak in 2007. But if coal is becoming so economically uncompetitive, why does it still make up so much of our grid mix? This week, coal is no longer king, but it still has a lot of power across the land. How do we banish it for good? Catherine, I haven't seen you in weeks. You look tanned. You look relaxed. Have you been out in the world? Yes, I've been out in the world, as have the cicadas. It is deafening. Less so now, it seems like maybe they've calmed down, or maybe I'm just used to the buzzing. What is it called? Brood X? It is, and they are breeding, for sure. So uh, have you had any run-ins with cicadas like that, that would freak us out? <laughs> I mean, you just like when I go for my run, if you stop at a stoplight, like all of a sudden you become the tree and they just all land there like, oh, you must be a tree. They're not they're not super smart. And then the birds are like drunk with eating so many of them. They're waddling around. My dog has been knocking birds out of the sky because they can't get off the ground. I'm like, what? This is a whole ecological thing. right now. <laughs> We're right on the edge up here in New England, so we haven't had the same problem. Uh, Catherine's in Arlington, Virginia, of course. She's the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions and our regular co-host. And I don't know, Joe, if you came here to escape, escape the cicadas or, or, or just because you missed the D.C. heat and you wanted to come into the heat wave up here in New England. What brought you up here? Uh, well, um, I, I met my wife here in Boston, and we've got a lot of friends still up here. So seemed like as good of a place as any to uh, escape Brudex. <laughs> and and, and the, that Joe is Joe Daniel, who is a senior energy analyst at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me. Joe's name might be familiar to some of our listeners because he has gotten the most shout outs on this show than anyone for his work on electricity markets. Uh, Jigger often read his pieces and Catherine would talk to Joe. And so you, you have many citations on this show, too many to count. Um, and a lot of that work has to do with coal markets and operation of coal plants, which we're going to talk about in this show. So we're, we're glad to finally have you here. Yeah, it's really great to be here. And it's, it's funny that you mention. Uh, the shout outs because I, I still remember the first time that that happened it was like a couple of weeks after I got a concussion and I was told to like take it easy don't do anything like you know no physical exertion for a while and I finally felt like all right I can walk to work like I can handle walking to work and I'm, I'm on my my commute and all of a sudden I hear you all saying like the blog that I wrote a few months earlier was like the story of the year and I actually had to stop in the middle of the sidewalk and just like 
Am I? Am I hallucinating right <laughs> is this now? Is a head injury is thing? This, is this a head injury? <laughs> like, do I need to go back to the hospital? Like, you know, pulled out my phone and went back a couple of minutes and re-listened to it, like, really intensely. I was like, oh my God, that actually just happened. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's really great to be here. You have Jigger's voice reverberating through your head during your, your head injury. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. All right, well, we're going to talk about some of that that foundational work. Uh, we're, it's all about coal in this week's episode. We're going to talk about uh, the operation of coal plants or the misoperation of coal plants. We're going to talk about the transition away from coal and what that might look like on a plant-by-plant basis and on a nationwide basis. So coal electricity is becoming more uncompetitive by the day, but it's still a big part of our energy mix here in the U.S., although not as much as it used to be. So why hasn't the generation fleet caught up with market realities? It comes down to something called self-scheduling. Turns out when you let utilities schedule their own plants in a way that ignores market pricing, they can keep coal open for much longer. A lot of coal plants in the U.S. are operating around the clock, even as wholesale power prices have dropped and alternatives have become much cheaper. Many of these plants are uneconomic to run, but a lot of regulated utilities are finding ways to keep them going so their losses can be recovered by who else? Us, the ratepayer. So what is happening here? First, Catherine, to you, give us the context around coal. What, what is its current role in the U.S. electricity mix? Well, let's go back a few years just to put this in context. So in 1997, coal generated 52.8% in the U.S. By 2014, it was 39%. And 2018, 27.4%. By Q1 of 2021, it was 19%. So coal is 19%. Now, natural gas is 40%. So we still have more fossil fuel generation than anything else. Nuclear power is 20%. And renewables is 20%. And renewables are dominated by wind, then hydro, then solar, biomass, geothermal, kind of in that order. And that one last percent, that is the reason coal isn't 20%, is petroleum. So there is still 1% of petroleum out there. Joe, if... Coal is so uneconomic. Why is it still, you know, roughly 20% of the electricity mix? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a a fair question. And I uh, think back to this presentation that the CEO of Great River Energy, which is an electricity co-op in Minnesota, it was uh, giving a presentation to the Lignite Energy Council back in October. And he talked about how uh, their coal plant, the Coal Creek Station, lost $170 million in 2019 by operating their power plant. And in fact, the, that the power plant hadn't operated economically since 2009, but it took them eight or nine years of you know, absorbing losses, which was his word, um, before they decided to, to start even analyzing whether they should retire it in another few years before they announced that they would retire the coal plant. And when, and when he says absorbing the losses, it's not his salary that the losses are coming out of. It's not the, uh, well, it's electric, it's electricity co-op, so there are no investors. Uh, it's just the customers. The customers end up paying the difference. And when you have captive customers like that, if you're an electricity co-op or a municipal utility or you know the traditional monopoly IOU, investor-owned utility, uh, you know, your investors are sort of isolated, insulated, from those market losses, because you go to your your rate payer, you go to your um, uh, the 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 
investors are insulated from those losses because you can go back to your regulator and you know give them the receipts for how much you spent on coal and you get cost recovery for those fuel costs. And so what we're talking about here when we are discussing self-scheduling, which we'll get to in a minute, are regulated, vertically integrated utilities that can earn a rate of return from regulators. We are not talking about power providers that are operating in deregulated markets that basically run plants based on market pricing in real time. Yeah, and it's really stark when you, like, you know, uh, in some of the earlier versions of the analysis, we would actually present graphics where every coal plant in the country was a dot. And uh, the the yellow dots would be investor-owned utilities that were rate regulated, and purple dots would be uh, you know, the independent power providers that were relying on the market prices to generate revenues. And they were like in two other, you know, opposite sections of the graph. It really is a very stark separation between how these coal plants are operating in the markets. So what is self-scheduling and why is it a problem? Okay, so the way energy markets are supposed to work, the fact, you know, the way all electric utilities are supposed to operate the grid is from lowest cost resources to highest cost resources. It's called merit order. And resources get lined up in merit order. So you have a, a wind or a solar facility that has no marginal cost. It has no fuel cost. Essentially, once it gets built, if it's available, it's free to run. So you operate those power plants first. Then you have hydro and nuclear and then uh, with gas prices as low as they are, you have gas plants. And then at the very end of the stack are these coal plants that are just more expensive than all the other resources are. But there are you know, market rules that allow you to self-commit and self-schedule your unit. Basically, you tell the grid operator, hey, I'm going to turn on my power plant. And if market prices go up, you can turn my unit up and I'll capture those higher prices, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna turn off my coal plant um, unless there's an emergency. And this allows those coal those coal units and those coal plants to essentially skip in line. And so they are then moved to the front of the merit order. And you know, in these hours in the Midwest when when load is low and wind is high, we don't curtail the expensive dirty coal. We end up curtailing the wind resources instead. And so wh- why do these rules exist in the first place? Uh, well, so for, you know, a, a coal plant is, is, a, is a relatively inflexible unit, right? It, doesn't, it can't turn on and off like a light switch can. And so you might want to turn your coal plant on uh, on, on Tuesday because you think the prices are going to be up over the next few days in a way that it makes sense to turn on your coal plant on Tuesday and then it'll be ready for the market prices that you expect on Wednesday or Thursday. Then there's there's other reasons. For example, uh, you know, storage units, storage, uh, battery storage technologies. Uh, you know, the operators of those um, of those technologies want to try to capture the peakiest hours to to discharge and the lowest hours to charge. And so most batteries will self-schedule or self-commit and tell the market, hey, I'm going to be operating this way. And if you're operating in a way that's where you're reliant on the market prices, like why would why would ISO New England care? Why would PJM care? If you want to suffer hundreds of millions of dollars of losses, that's on you. 
uh, and it really, uh, you know, and that's how market when markets were first created in Texas, in New England, in California, the operators were all reliant on the market prices. But then the markets expanded into territories where you still had these vertically integrated monopolies, but the rules didn't change, uh, and and monopolies are able to exploit those rules, exploit those loopholes. Okay, so then what does all this amount to? What additional costs are we ratepayers paying in individual markets or economy wide? So uh, you know, in the ISOs and RTOs that rely on coal which are ERCOT, PJM, MISO, and Southwest Power Pool, SPP, uh, those four markets alone incur about a billion dollars a year. And most of those losses are in Southwest Power Pool and MISO. So we looked at, uh, and, and it kind of changes from year to year depending on gas prices and load and, and you know any number of variables. But we're looking at about a billion dollars a year for a footprint that represents two thirds of coal. Uh, so, you know, it's going to be in that that range, that that order of magnitude. Um, and for for a typical customer, that could be you know twenty thirty dollars a uh, a year in additional costs. Mm. And we're talking about well, like a couple dozen plants around the country. This is not like hundreds of coal plants. This is some like a handful of really big coal plants. Well, yes, the the worst actors, the ones who are driving the largest portion of these costs, are a handful. But it's it you know it's not uh, not uncommon to see a lot of coal plants operate for one or two months of the year uneconomically. Um, but you know they're they're not going to get a lot of attention. Um, from from somebody like me, because there are coal plants. Like there was the Dole Hills coal-fired power plant in Louisiana. Uh, it was not economic to operate in a single hour in 2017, 2018, 2019. Uh, yet it operated in 80 or 90 percent of the hours in those years. So you have these coal plants that just like turn on and stay on all year round, even though they're never economic. So, and those are the ones that are really driving the the largest portion of those costs. What is the end result of all of this? Yeah, I mean, you've got the end result of customers having to pay more, but you also have an industry that continues to linger, be uncompetitive, and hold everybody back, and also all of the emissions. So think of the emissions that you could reduce simply by making sure that these plants are operating only when they absolutely need to be. I spoke with Isabel Rickards from Fresh Energy, who has been working in Minnesota, and they started an investigation, or the Public Utility Commission started an investigation on this self-commitment and when are plants running when it's not economic to run. And Excel announced two units to have only economic commitment. So they only operate in the summer and winter when they're really needed. And then they have what's called a coal holiday, which sounds like uh, a lot of fun, um, during the spring and fall, and they just idle. Just those two units save 70 to 90% greenhouse gas reduction, and the state can even meet 20% of their state greenhouse gas reduction target just with those two units. So as Excel announces that soon they will all of their units will shift to um, only being operating when economically viable by 2023, that can make not just a good economic dent um, for customers, but also then 
lower greenhouse gas emissions significantly. So we identified that there are rules in place that allow utilities, regulated utilities to do this. And um, in that context, I think the rational thing to do is to take the losses and earn them back and, you know, keep these plants running for as long as possible. And why not do it if you've got the regulation in place that allows you to do it? But at the same time, we have these utilities that are coming out with fairly ambitious net zero targets, which will inevitably require them to shut down whatever existing coal plants they have left. Excel uh, Energy is you know, a, a really important example here. And you, Joe, have pointed out that Excel, uh, although it is one of the first utilities to set an ambitious net zero target, has a major coal plant, a fairly new coal plant in Colorado that it is keeping open um, by self-scheduling. And so this directly contradicts what Excel is trying to do. So why then is... Excel keeping this plant open, is it just simply to pay back debt? Is there something else going on? And, and why is it so contradictory to what the utility is saying publicly? Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a head scratcher because you see them in, in Minnesota, as Catherine pointed out, like doing the right thing uh, and, and shutting down the coal plant when it's not economic to run. Yet in Colorado, uh, a an independent investigation, an auditor found out that the replacement power for the Comanche three coal, you know, the coal unit is, you know, I think uh, uh, about a million dollars less in the winter time than the cost of operating that power plant because there's so much surplus power out in the West. So Excel could arguably start changing the way it operates. And and the CEO back when, when Excel made the Minnesota announcement said that they were gonna consider this for their entire fleet. But they've just been slow to act. And I, I suspect that the big differentiator is the commission. You know, in Minnesota, uh, you had commissioners say very you know straightforwardly and very frankly that they were going to get to the heart of this issue and they were going to resolve it. And they were going to find resolution. And so Excel saw where the regulatory winds were blowing and you know went along for the ride and they knew they could get some good PR on the way. In Colorado, this audit came out, the auditor recommended looking into this issue, and it's languished. So, you know, hopefully, as time passes, uh, it will grab the attention of the regulators in, the, in that state. But it certainly, you know, this is not isolated to the Excel territories. This is, you know, an issue that we've brought up in a number of states, and it really just takes a lot of education to the commissioners because they presume that the RTOs and ISOs are operating the grid efficiently. Like that's the point of MISO is to have economic dispatch. And they even talk about in, you know, if you read the MISO documentation, their value proposition is that they provide billions of dollars in value add through things like economic dispatch and transmission planning. But if the utilities are able to undermine that, then it becomes a real problem for those long-term decarbonization goals. Yes, so much of this depends on a commission that has people who really understand what they're looking at or whether they defer to the utility who says, look, we know how to operate our plants. Like, we know what we're doing. Um, And luckily, Minnesota did. 
I spoke with Melissa Leggy from Earth Justice, who has had a ton of experience on these cases, including in Indiana with Duke Energy. And it is just, um, it's wrenching what you have to go through. And if you don't have a regulator that is really informed and open to new information and, and a utility that's fighting it, it is really difficult. So a process can be something like, first of all, you have to figure out the right procedure in the regulatory construct at which you want to enter. So it could be through their IRP, their planning process. It could be through a rate case. It could be through their fuel adjustment proceeding, which is, you know, where they true up how much the fuel costs. And in some of those, it used to be monthly true ups. Now some of them have quarterly. By the time you try to get into the case, the time is up for being able to intervene in the first place. So first you have to figure out the proceeding, then you have to become an intervener. And quite often, and I've had this happen to me too, and I've had to push back on utilities that say, no, you shouldn't be an intervener. You have no interest in this case. And so then you have to fight for just being a party to the case and being able to present information. Then you have to go through discovery and actually get all the data from utilities that you need. And let's just say it's not all very transparent. (laughs) I've tried to do this too, and they may give you uh, something that is useful and they may not. So you have to dig and try to find out what the data is, uh, where the data are, and then analyze that to figure out what they're doing and how they're operating. Um, And then you have to fight at the PUC. Then you have to make your case before the PUC, try to get them to open an investigation. And they have a huge amount of discretion. And so it's really stacked up against the folks that are trying to push against this if you don't have a PUC that's interested in moving. Yeah, like in that Indiana case that, that Melissa was working on, you know, I read some of the public testimony in that case. And, you know, there was a uh, Jeremy Fisher, who's a um, an analyst at the Sierra Club. You know, I read his testimony. If you read through it, it's like really straightforward and makes sense. And it's just like makes a really clear technical case and factual case about this costing customers money. And like, if you're a lawyer for an environmental organization working in PUCs, like you're gonna, you, make your case better than anyone else like you the the bar is so much higher for you and therefore the community tends to be populated with some of the best lawyers around and so they make a really great case and yet the commission still had a unanimous ruling against them because of deference to the utility and the standard protocols of oh well the way this works is we've approved these types of costs in the past and since we've done it in the past we're just going to keep doing it and so the that inertia works against you in a way that can be really frustrating as you're playing that game of whack-a-mole that that um, that Catherine was describing so so well earlier. We identified two obvious impacts here. One is that ratepayers pay more, and the other is that emissions don't drop as fast as they need to. What are some other impacts today, Joe? So. Let's think about you know the the topic du jour uh, in the electricity world right now, which is transmission planning and transmission. Like you you know you hear you know, particularly if you're on energy Twitter, there's there's a there's few things that are being discussed more widely right now. But if you build out more transmission for renewable energy, which we absolutely need to do, but if coal plants' response to that is to continue to self-commit their coal and just congest those transmission lines with dirty energy. Well, then the wind has nowhere to go. 
Uh, so even things like transmission, which is really vital to the clean energy transition, can be interfered with by by this practice. I mean, it really is the energy market. This notion of you know least cost merit order dispatch is the engine that is supposed to drive all of the other elements of the electricity system. And so when it's not working efficiently, it, it sort of that deficiency, that inefficiency gets, you know, resonates and, and gets magnified with each further step. Um, and then there's like climate policy and how is this going to impact climate policy? I think that's a really, a really big and unanswered question. Yeah, one thing that struck me, Joe, when I was talking to folks is how strong and just really embedded the entire coal infrastructure ecosystem is. So it's not just about the coal plant, but it's about all of the mining that supports it. And it's about all these long term, we're going to have these contracts for coal. And what are you going to do if you're not using it? It stacks up. Some of them pay to store coal in the mine that they're not using that they have to defer and they got to figure out what to do with it because they have these long-term contracts so there's all of the mining and the transportation and then a lot of these coal plants are also producing steam for industry so these paper mills that are sitting there adjacent that are getting steam what are you going to do when you cut that off and you're going to cut off the steam for the plant how do you then backfill on that all of the jobs that are involved in this um even if even if it's not at you know full steam so to speak you still have job impact so there's this entire ecosystem um and it was it was interesting talking to Isabel about what's happening in Minnesota where sometimes you know Minnesota's so cold you would have to keep the plant running anyway just to make sure it didn't get too cold and that seems like a lot of coal to burn just to keep a building warm yeah and then and then the question is all right well if it was costing you know ten thousand dollars i could i could totally understand that but in some of these cases it's costing you know hundreds of millions of dollars a year to keep that plant open and incur losses i my guess is that there are ways to to generate steam that costs less than a hundred million dollars a year right that that gre the the cold creek station the the utilities own estimates was that they lost $170 million in 2019. I think those are, there are legitimate issues, but every single one of them seem, you know, other people have found ways around. Remember, IPPs have figured out a way around this. Like they have figured out a way to not operate their coal plants uneconomically. That transmission point is really interesting, Joe. And, and the other one that comes to mind is what happens if we have some kind of carbon price? Like our utilities just going to absorb, absorb that cost too and pass it on to customers? It feels like that could potentially blunt a carbon tax depending on the price. Yeah, I think that's exactly, a, I think that's the exact right concern to have is, you know, if, if a coal plant is willing to lose, you know, $10 for every megawatt hour it generates, why wouldn't it lose five, uh, 15 or, or 20 or 25? Um, and so, you know, there are certainly going to be long-term effects of a carbon price that would that would um, help decarbonization. And there are certainly going to be some uh, coal plants that respond to a carbon price. But if a utility is able to operate their coal plant at $170 million loss and has been doing so since 2009 uh, without much scrutiny, without much pushback, um, you know, what impact will, will a carbon price have? Th that's a question that... Um, 
you know, has not been answered by, you know, I, I don't, I'm not aware of any analysis that's really delved into that question. Well, more people are catching on to this. I can just see the next protest in D.C. with signs being held up saying ban self-commitment in the mid-continent independent system <laughs> operated for climate justice. Yeah, I don't I don't know if that's uh, if that's in our future. But I think <laughs> I think that, you know, when you look at some of these newer coal plants, uh, you know, they don't want their coal plant to look uneconomic because it, you know, it has to be, quote, used and useful in order for them to get cost recovery. And if you built your coal plant in 2010 or you just built a scrubber, you know, uh, to comply with mats in 2016, uh, you've got a lot of debt on that coal plant and you're going to want to make your coal plant look look as needed and necessary as possible. We're going to take a brief pause here to talk about our supporter of the Energy Gang, and that supporter is Aurora Solar. Aurora Solar develops the software tools to help solar grow. Did you know that solar is expected to top 100 gigawatts in the U.S. this year? That's enough to power almost 20 million homes. And even more impressively, that number is expected to quadruple in the next 10 years. So if you want to join a winning team in technology that is booming because of the renewable energy revolution, head on over to Aurora Solar's career page and apply to one of the dozens of fully remote roles they have open across the company. You'll be joining an organization that was voted a best place to work in 2021 while building the digital platform that powers the future of the solar industry. Learn more at aurorasolar.com slash energy gang. That's aurorasolar.com slash energy gang. We're also brought to you by NLX. The energy industry is changing quickly and project developers are seeing growing demand as businesses and utilities seek a lot more renewable energy. NLX helps solar partners get more revenue from projects by adding flexible distributed energy assets. NLX installs, maintains, and manages energy storage systems, smart electric vehicle charging systems, and more. NLX's solutions help customers of all sizes use energy smarter. By accessing lucrative grid programs and reducing emissions, you can find out more about how to partner with NLX at nlx.com. That's E-N-E-L-X dot com. So if utilities are operating money-losing plants because the incentives and regulations are all aligned to charge ratepayers more for coal, what's the solution? How do we unburden ourselves from the long-term agreements these plants are under? One solution is to literally buy back the debt through securitization, basically like refinancing a mortgage. It's an idea that's gaining traction in states around the country. So let's look at how it would work. Uh, how could we use the savings from this refinancing method to close coal plants, but also to invest the savings in clean energy in an economic transition for coal workers? It's got this dual benefit. Joe, what is securitization? Des describe how this works in terms of coal plants. Well, I think the refinancing analogy is is the right analogy to make. So. Uh, a, a, coal, a utility is going likely to be making seven, eight, nine, ten percent rate of return on the uh, debt associated with a large asset like a coal plant. But the going rate for a um, low risk bond might be a third of that uh, or even less. And so if you can bundle that debt and securitize it, you can end up paying a much lower interest rate. And because the costs of clean energy have gone down so much, you can replace the energy that was being generated by that coal plant with 
cheaper clean energy with less expensive wind or solar and then you take all of the the debt that was going to get paid from you know over a long period of time and create a regulatory asset that the company still collects money for but it's at a much lower interest rate and therefore can be less expensive for for customers yeah and to be clear securitization is a tool to mitigate ratepayer costs, but it, it could it could be for any unexpected costs that a utility incurs. It could be for storm damage or wildfires, or it, it was used um, during electric electricity restructuring to try to make the customers whole again. So it's not just used for this, but it's a tool that the utilities have. Yeah, and and it's it's been, you know it's it's interesting because uh, you know it really now is a sort of unique time because interest rates are so low for these bonds and because clean energy is so low you can really you know right now if you have access to this you know confusing financial mechanism then you can take advantage of the opportunity but if you know there's a window right if if interest rates go back up um then it becomes more expensive to refinance so it's it's been something that has been on the radar for a few years, and you've seen um, you know states in the West and the Midwest looking at uh, authorizing the opportunity to to because right now like you have to have not everyone can securitize debt like in Georgia they're not allowed to up until very recently in Kansas you weren't allowed to but then the legislature passed law a law that would allow the commission to approve utility securitization. Yeah, exactly. So state legislation is required, unless we were to have something federally, which we could talk about at some point. But state legislation would be required to allow to protect consumers to allow refinancing uneconomic, but also undepreciated power plants. So you have to make that up somehow. And in 2019, Colorado, Montana, New Mexico, Wisconsin, and Michigan uh, legislatures moved. And then in 2021, Indiana, Kansas, Missouri, Minnesota, and these are bipartisan bills. Um, So 10 states now allow it and about seven have implemented it since 2019. And so what happens when you allow it? Like what what is the next step after a law is passed? Well, you know, it really depends on the the makeup of the law. If you look at like the three Western states that Catherine talked about, Colorado, New Mexico, and Montana, the they had radically, not radically different, but significantly different uh, requirements and provisions in the law. And Energy Innovation, Ron Lear and uh, Michael Boyle from Energy Innovation did a, a really great paper on a compare and contrast of those three laws. And like none of them had all of the elements of the law, but like some of them had really, really specific consumer protections built in there. And some had very specific uh, commission duties and responsibilities and authorizations. And, you know, it's just important because in California, they're only allowed to securitize things if the legislation provides a special authorization. They can't, you know, the utility and commission can't, you know, bilaterally make that decision. It has to be with legislative, legislative consent. Um, whereas in other states, once the, the, the floodgates were opened, then it just became a decision for the utility and the commission. Yeah, Rocky Mountain Institute has done some work on this too. I spoke with Uday Varadarajan and Ben Sururier. 
from Rocky Mountain Institute. And the RMI paper is titled How to Retire Early, Making Accelerated Coal Phase-Out Reasonable, Feasible, and Just. And they spoke exactly to what Joe just said, is that there are things that you want to make sure that you include in any legislation. And Colorado has done some of this as a model, which is not only do you refinance existing coal obligations, so buy those down, but also make sure that there's reinvestment in clean energy so you can backfill from that. And the third huge piece is to fund assistance for the transition for workers and communities. So those are the three big things. And then you have all of these co-benefits where you have the coal plant retire, consumers paying lower costs, utilities are investing in what they should be investing in and benefiting from that, I might add. And then workers and communities are getting money for local economic development. And that is a win-win-win all around if you do it right. If we look at the states that are enabling this and then compare that with the large plants that are staying in operation that are that represent the biggest slice of emissions, is there significant overlap, Joe? Like, are we focusing on this in the right places? Uh, yeah, it, it does look like there is. And, you know, at the top uh, of, the, of the podcast, you and Catherine were talking about how coal makes up, you know, 19, 20% of the generation, but it still makes up the vast majority of electric sector emissions, not just CO2 emissions, but like mercury emissions and particulate emissions and all of the things that harm human health. And so when you look at it from, from that perspective, uh, you know, these, these coal plants have very acute local impacts. And one of the things that securitization can do is make sure that the, um, that the flip side, that the positive impacts of getting rid of that coal uh, are also specific and targeted. So you can have workforce development, you can have uh, local clean energy project provisions, and you know you can have the, the the consumer protections, the climate protections, and the labor protections sort of intentionally embedded in the legislation. Well, and there was a, a utility dive article about this about how like there's hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, you know, up for potential savings through power sector securitization, uh, both on on just not just the, the coal side, but just overall in terms of bad debt, you know, unpaid customer debt because of COVID, uh, underappreciated plant balances associated with coal plants. So, um, you know, there is wide reaching and, and lots of other issues at play today where where this is a tool that can be used but the one thing i would caution about is like any tool like it has its specific purpose and sometimes when you get like that brand new fancy hammer everything starts to look like a nail and you just want to like oh i'm just going to use this tool to solve all of my problems now and it, it doesn't really work that way like there's there's kind of a limited set of of problems that the that the that this tool can provide and the other thing I, I wanted to, to mention, um, so the Institute for uh, Local Self-Reliance, ILSR, um, you know, they actually have, they talk about securitization and, and um, a lot, and they had a whole podcast, I think, uh, devoted to, to the topic. And one of the things that they point out is, you know, this, is, this was a bad investment decision by the utilities. Like in almost all of these proceedings where, you know, a coal a utility like Duke wanted to put in scrubbers. There was an advocate like Sierra Club or NRDC or or a local you know um, Michigan 
group that was saying, no, this is a bad idea. And yet the utility did it anyways. And now they're saying, oh, now we have hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. But like, should they be allowed to recover those costs? Or should should their investors be the ones that foot the bill? Because, you know, it was a bad decision. Like, why should customers be on the hook for every bad decision? And I think that's a really important question that legislators and regulators have to be asking. Yeah, definitely. So the capital that was deployed in 2005 was like $60 billion out there. And now it's like close to $160 billion. But if you look at the opportunity for clean energy investment, it's like a $400 billion opportunity. So there's so much upside to changing where your capital is going. So coal securitization is a very targeted way to buy out specific coal plants. It's got its use. Um, but there are other tools in the toolkit. And, and I want to broaden this way out and talk about, like, what would a buyout of the entire coal industry look like? Um, literally, just nationalize the whole thing, shut it down, offer proper wages, health care, pensions, job replacement to displaced workers. What would that cost? And actually, uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists, where uh, Joe works, has an analysis showing that it would cost somewhere between $33 billion and $83 billion over 15 years. Now, we're all fairly realistic people, so we understand the political realities are fairly distant on something like this. But at a time when we're injecting trillions of dollars into the economy, that overall investment figure feels extremely small. So how could it be done? Um, what would it look like? How would you spend the money? Catherine, while this is not really a realistic option politically, there are people within the administration considering it, talking through how it would work. H how are those conversations or considerations going? Yeah, there is an interagency working group on coal and power plant communities uh, that just released a report in April on you know, what are those priority energy communities, where has coal mining employment declined, in, and where where and coal power generation, and how do we target those, and how do we find solutions specific to those communities. So certainly on the federal side, the administration is thinking about that. And I would say definitely in Congress, all of those members of Congress who are in states that are in those communities, and a lot of them are red states, are really trying to get a handle on what do we need to do. And some of them, are, of course, are fighting change, but others are trying to figure out what's the path forward. So I do think there's some good solutions on this, and I'd love to dig in a little bit more into what UCS has found. Yeah, and I'll actually, you know, channel the most famous contrarian on this show, uh, our friend Jigger, and, and say that I don't think it's unrealistic. Like, we currently subsidize the fossil fuel industry somewhere between 25 and $50 billion a year in direct subsidies and, and, and in some indirect subsidies, most of which goes to, you know, the corporate investors and the CEOs. The what, what UCS and others are proposing is that we don't buy out the industry, but we, you know, provide a safety net and we provide support to the veterans of the energy industry that have kept the lights on for, for decades. And, you know, there's 52,000 workers in coal mining, 37,000 people employed at coal fired power plants, uh, you know, keeping them, you know, with a, a secure source of income and of education and 
um, the opportunity to transition into other forms of uh, uh, careers, like that is the type of the exact type of climate policy that makes sense for West Virginians and Kentuckians. Um, and there are already at a small scale organizations doing that. And there already are examples of success of that happening. So the idea of just, you know, uh, taking something that works and broadening it and expanding it, I don't, I don't know how unrealistic it is. Well, I spoke with Chelsea Barnes, who's the legislative director for Appalachian Voices, and she's down in southwestern Virginia, where a lot of my family is, too. And she and I were just talking about how there are very different stages of decline of coal in different parts of the country. And in down in southwestern Virginia, a lot of those jobs went away decades ago, but the economy has never recovered. So how do you deal with that? How is it not just about things that are closing today or that we want to close in the future? And how do we take care of those workers? But how do we deal with what has been an ongoing decline? And so while I think that it's super important to make sure that we look at, you know, sustaining if you have workers they're going to be dislocated sustaining their wages and benefits and and UCS um, recommends five years making sure that those workers and their children have educational benefits so that you can do two or four year programs and actually get educated that you're hooked in with the Department of Labor programs to for training and, and jobs and other support like mental health support like making sure that you that this transition is not something that is very difficult for people um, but there's more than that there's also the decommissioning re- remediation of power plant sites and coal ash plants uh, coal ash ponds all of the physical detriment that these plants have caused and then Chelsea pointed me to a really interesting report by Eric Dixon um, and this was repairing the damage cleaning up the land air and water damaged by the coal industry before 1977 so in 1977 uh, Congress passed the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act and they created the abandoned mine land program and that was to look at all of these almost a million acres and eight billion dollars worth of damage and that's what has been done but that's only 27 percent of the total damage there are almost 21 billion dollars of unreclaimed land that could really be brought to bear on you know making sure that you repair the damage creating jobs um the poverty rate in these counties is significant so putting funding in for economic growth and development all this runoff and sediment that clogged waterways and polluted water make sure that you deal with those issues all these fires from abandoned mines so really dealing with the abandoned mines and the land around them you could really do in if you clean up half of it in 10 years you could support 7,000 direct jobs um, and create enormous economic development so it's more than just the workers it's also the land and that all creates an ecosystem of benefit if we do it right. Yeah, however way you slice this, there is a massive economic imperative. Like every sign out there is pointing toward the need for this to happen and for it to happen very quickly. These communities are suffering or they are going to suffer. And um, there are a lot of great ideas out there. I want to go back to the overall price tag, though, because it's not that expensive. $33 billion to $83 billion uh, to support... Again, wages for people who are working, 
right now in you know the 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 coal extraction or coal generation industry for for healthcare for pensions for for actual job placement programs uh, joe walk me through that number that comes from your colleague at UCS Jeremy Richardson so what what are you actually factoring in there so it's it's factoring in a minimum level of support for workers uh, specifically uh, wage replacement healthcare coverage uh, and continued employer contributions to retirement funds or pension plans, as well as tuition and job replace or job placement assistance. So it's a pretty comprehensive package to help keep these communities on their feet, keep these families on their feet, make sure that they're they are able to put food on the on the table while simultaneously preparing them for you know. A new career because they're not they're not going to just sit there and not want to work. They're 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 all very motivated people who who want to make contributions, who want to be at work and want to be um, engaged. And so you have you know a lot of good examples of this on the small scale, like the uh, the E Kentucky Advanced Manufacturing Institute, which has trained um, in 2019 trained about 200 people, most of them former coal workers in high tech manufacturing jobs, all right? And and this is not going to be the 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 path for all coal workers, but like there's going to be opportunities for coal miners to become things other than cobalt miners, right? There's going to be a lot of ways to take their learned skills and work ethic and apply it to any number of potential, you know, skill sets. Yeah, one thing I would note is that there are great local examples of how to do this, and it's and the solutions can be very localized, but the funding and the access to that funding is really important. So it we can do this federally with a chunk of federal funding, but we have to make sure it's accessible that communities don't have to, you know, ante up fifty percent of it to get their fifty percent because a lot of these communities just don't have anything. So we have to make sure that they're appropriately resourced and that they have the funding and the flexibility um, and the capacity on the ground to make the changes that they want to recover. So you may have used this term, Joe, energy veterans. It's something that your your colleague Jeremy Richardson uses in talking about people in the uh, extractive energy industry uh, that need to make this transition as energy veterans, the folks who have, you know, built this economy and we need to recognize their role in it. And I think simple phrasing goes a long way to making policies palatable and understandable to people. And using phrases like supporting our energy veterans feels real and respectful and something that people can identify with. And I just felt, I feel like that that's the right way to start talking about this if this is going to be a real policy political discussion. Yeah, I I would agree with that. And I would say that, you know, we worked on that paper and with the policy recommendations with the Utility Workers Union of America. Like, and so the, you know, it as well as the phrasing matters, you're right, the phrasing matters, but also the messenger matters. And so when you have organizations like UCS partnering with, you know, utility worker unions, uh, that's much more powerful than when it's just, you know, UCS on its own. And so, you know, we've been very intentional and, and Jeremy, I shouldn't say, you know, I, I, this has been something that Jeremy has been working on for, for a number of years. Um, 
uh, you know, he's been successful in coming up with really great, palatable, and and resonant policy recommendations because he's been working with these communities and working with representatives of these communities. And I think we can extend that same approach to a lot of different things that the energy industry is starting to work on. And if we want to have those sort of resonant policies, then I think that's that's the way to go. Yeah, I just will never forget Marianne Hitt from the Beyond Coal campaign of the Sierra Club said, these are the people on whose shoulders our economy was built. And we have to show them respect and be able to work with them on a transition that means something for them and for our future. Let's go to free electrons. Joe, what's your free electron? Oh, this was this was so hard. Um, you know, you all are, are lucky. You've had literally hundreds of free electrons just bursting every week, and I've had to, I've had to uh, think about just one. And I've decided to go with the Solar Energy Innovators Program, which is a, uh, a joint effort by the U.S. Department of Energy, the the Office of Energy Efficiency Renewable Energy at Solar Technology Energy Office, and ORISE, the Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education, and essentially. What it's doing is taking recent grads and plugging them in to public utility commissions, uh, ISOs and RTOs, the, the, the regional transmission operators, and taking people with real solar expertise and making sure that those people are embedded in these really important decision-making venues. And um, uh, I just was like so awestruck reading about it. Um, I'm not leaving UCS anytime soon, uh, but I just like was like this would have been the coolest job to have out of grad school um, or undergrad or PhD for for those of your listeners. And so, uh, yeah, I just want to give a shout out to that program. Oh yeah, I when I went to call the Mississippi Public Service Commission about uh, the IRP, I was put in touch with the Solar Innovation Fellow, and she was amazing, and she helped me think through the whole rulemaking process. So smart, I, and I did not realize she was part of this program, but it is a great program. And I think, like we talked about earlier, about how commissions really aren't set up to like look at issues like self scheduling, these uber technical issues, they're understaffed. Like this is just a great way to add some staff capacity to commissions, which is always going to be a good thing. Catherine, what's your free electron? Well, so that was going to be it, but I had a second one. I was going to use two, but now I don't have to be a piggy. Um, So there was a report by the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, IEFA, that talked about global coal. And this was in India and saying that India is going to peak by 2025, um, that India has 33 gigawatts of coal under construction and 29 gigawatts in pre-construction. And those 29 gigawatts haven't done anything. But these are not going to be economic. And part of this is about economics. And part of this is really about energy security and the fact that countries like India, Japan, Korea, and China are net importers. And it's not a good place to be. A lot of them, of course, are getting their coal from Australia, which produces 10% of the world's coal, but only consumes 1%. So they only they only they use the 1% as their number for greenhouse gas emissions, but they provide a lot more elsewhere. But if we can, if we can choke off what Australia sends out, um, by making it uneconomic everywhere else, I think we're going to be in better shape and Australia will have to find something else to export. But there was a great discussion of this um, on the Redefining Energy podcast that really I, I was listening to it to prepare 
prepare for this show, um, even though it was a global conversation. It was uh, super interesting. Joe, when your work here is done in America, you got plenty of other countries to to focus on. Yeah, and can I just say that there's nothing more validating that I chose the right free electron than the fact that I scooped Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so um, I am always focused on how these issues, sometimes highly technical or grounded in research, uh, filter their way through popular culture. And I've come up with a couple of these examples on recent free electrons. The most recent one is the show Full Frontal with Samantha Bee, which is on TBS and often makes its way around the internet with good, uh, funny clips based on, you know, comedic sketches, talking to experts based on things in the news. And one recently was on the natural gas industry's social media campaign to convince people to use gas stoves. We talked about that extensively on a recent show with Danelle Baird. And the gas industry, of course, now sees these gas bans as a real threat. And all of a sudden, there's this shift about how we're using gas in homes in the gas industry, um, understands that they need to push back. And Alana Harkin did a piece kind of joking about the gas industry's um, social media tactics to convince people to use more gas in their homes. But also, she reviewed the indoor air quality problem. And there's been, a, you know, in the last couple of years, a lot of great research showing how natural gas use in the home for cooking can, you know, cause severe um, air quality that would be illegal outside of the home. And I just feel like change works its way in really funny ways through society. It influences behavior and perceptions. And two years ago, very few people were talking about this. And now it's become a story worth mocking on national television. So it feels to me like this is a, a small story, but an important cultural moment for how we view natural gas. Yeah, I, it, she even slept with the induction hot plate, evidently. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was it was a great bit. And I and uh, super interesting. I think that's going to do it for the show. Joe, really, your name has been mentioned so many times in the show, and we're so glad to actually have you on. Thanks for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me. Catherine, uh, I've seen a dog wander in and out of your room a couple of times during this conversation. I think I think you need to go walk a dog now. Yeah, that's the one that's been eating the cicadas, and I'm a little worried. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Daniel is a senior energy analyst at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Catherine Hamilton is my co-host and is the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions. Thanks to both of you. Thanks to all of you for listening. We really appreciate you being with us. And of course, hit us up with a rating and review. Get, out, get to us on social media with your ideas if you want to respond to our conversation, to Joe's analysis, ask questions. Please, we're all there on Twitter so you can tag us and we will hopefully get back to you. And we will, of course, catch you next week. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. 